Our story this Sunday is Noah and the Flood, which covers Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9, verse 17. So I don't have time to read that whole section for you in this recording, but I hope you'll read it yourself, and I'll just try and hit some of the highlights. Law and Gospel, God punished man because of his sinfulness, wiping out sinful mankind, and yet in his grace and his mercy, he provide, He waited 120 years for men to repent and provided a way of salvation for those who would repent, namely the ark. Time and time again, we are told in scripture that Noah and his flood is a sign of the time yet to come, that in the latter days it will be just like the days of Noah, that God's judgment will be about to come upon the earth. Yet, even as God's judgment comes upon the earth, he has provided us with a way of escape, namely Jesus, through his death and resurrection. So we don't have to be afraid of his coming, but we should be aware that it is coming, and we should warn others as Noah did in his time. We are sinful and deserve to die, but God in his mercy has provided a way of escape if we listen to his word and believe his promises, just as he did for Noah. Genesis chapter 6 verse 1 begins with a reference to the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. This reference is often misunderstood. There are many out there in Christianity who claim that this is a reference to angels marrying uh, humans. And that's simply not the case. Jesus tells us straight out in the New Testament that angels do not marry nor are they given in marriage. Uh, they're spirit beings. They don't have physical bodies, right? They they can't marry humans. It, that doesn't make any sense. Plus, Jesus says it's not true. Rather, what Genesis chapter 6 is talking about is the descendants of Seth versus the descendants of Cain. Uh, Cain killed his brother Abel and was cast out by the Lord. Uh, the Lord was hoping he would repent, but he never did. Uh, both he and his descendants continued in wickedness. The descendants of Seth called upon the name of the Lord, learning to worship God. And for a while they did worship God, and we see that line in Genesis chapter 5 of those who walked with God like Enoch, who was taken to be with God because he walked with God and, and was, found, uh, was found favor in the eyes of God. But over time, uh, the descendants of Seth also began to care more about the beauty of the sinful women and wanting beautiful women for wives instead of those that are godly and Christian women. Of course, some Christian women are beautiful, uh, but the, the point is that they care more about the outward looks than about the inner heart. And when believers marry unbelievers, the children often grow up uh, thinking that, well, faith doesn't really matter. They maybe have one parent who does believe and one parent who doesn't, and they, they choose which one they want to follow, right? Uh, so it often leads to unbelieving children. Over time, more and more forsook the faith, caring more about the things of this world. You notice Genesis chapter 6 uh, talks about the beauty of the women and the great renown of the men. They were, they were men of great stature, of great renown. So the women were beautiful and the men were great warriors, great heroes. And that's how we like to idealize uh, people even today. Uh, we like to you know, think of women as great beauties and men as strong, courageous fighters. And oh, that's what we want to be uh, as women and as men as well. But God uh, doesn't care. The, the men made great, a great name for themselves. Everyone throughout the whole earth knew their name because they were such great heroes. But God doesn't care about that. Uh, he sees the wickedness of their heart and the wickedness of their deeds. 
Proverbs tells us that he who controls his anger is greater than he who conquers a city. Uh, it's an easy thing to conquer a city with an, with an army, far easier than learning to control our own anger. God doesn't care how many mighty deeds we do and valiant deeds. Uh, he cares where our heart is at. And so the Lord saw the wickedness of man, even though they thought they were such great people and decided to destroy the earth. But in his mercy, he waits 120 years. They will have 120 years of time to repent. And God is going to send Noah to warn them of the coming flood. Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Uh, Noah proclaimed, warned the people of the coming flood and of the salvation which God gave to them through the ark by building the ark. Uh, even if he never gave a single sermon in his whole life, he was a preacher of righteousness just by building the ark. All the neighbors, everyone would have seen him building this ark and said, Noah, what are you doing? And he would have told them, God is sending a flood to kill all people. But if you come into the ark with me, you can be saved. Of course, nobody took him up. Nobody repented and believed uh, God's word and came into the ark with Noah. But the warning was there and the way of escape, the way of salvation was there. Just like in our day, the warning is there. The coming day of judgment uh, is there. The warning is there through scripture. And the way to escape that judgment is Jesus Christ. Uh, so just as in the day of Noah, so also in our day as well. Men were evil continually, but, but Noah found favor with God. The Hebrews taught that there are three kinds of people. They say that there are those who are born righteous, perfect and without sin, and live their lives righteously. They're the great saints, and they would say Noah is one of those. And then they say there are those who are, are born sinful but learn to be righteous. And then they would say, well, there are those who are born sinful and they struggle with sin their whole lives. The Bible doesn't speak that way. The Bible says we are all sinful from birth. Uh, in sin my mother conceived me, right? Noah was a sinner like one of us, but found favor, found grace with God. God had grace on him. And Hebrews 11 verse 7 tells us very specifically, by faith Noah became an heir of righteousness. So it's not that he was, uh, it was not his righteousness. Now Noah probably was far more righteous than the people of his day, and Noah probably was far more righteous than we are, so if you compare him to us or the, the people of his day, we'd have to say, yeah, he's a pretty righteous man. But he was still a sinner, and he was not saved because of his righteousness. He was saved through faith in Jesus Christ, just as we are saved. Uh, that was counted to him for righteousness. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Even though the Lord had determined to destroy all the earth in his mercy, he had, he had, grace upon, he had mercy upon Noah and determined a way to save him. But not only to save Noah, but to save all of us as well. And that's so important. This isn't just about Noah, is it? It's about the promise he made to Adam and Eve to send a savior. If he hadn't saved Noah and his family from the flood, that promise that he had made to Adam and Eve would be gone. It would be lost. The savior never would have come. But he saved Noah and his family so that they could repopulate the earth. And through Noah's line now, that savior would come to bring us our salvation. So it's it's that's really the, the real reason that, that God saved Noah was because of his promise and his grace and his mercy to fulfill that promise to send a savior. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Uh, so he told Noah to build an ark. The word ark really just means a box, a box used to preserve something. It's one that's closely associated with God's work of salvation. It's used here in the flood. Noah's to build an ark a box in which God is going to save Noah and the animals. 
It's used of Moses. He is put in that basket, and that word in the Hebrew is that same word, ark. He's put in a, a container that saves him from the water of the Nile River. And then it's used again, the ark of the covenant, the box in the temple, which preserved the Ten Commandments in Aaron's rod and also the manna. The Ark of the Covenant, which preserved God's covenant with his people, God's promise to save his people. And so that term Ark is, is very much a, a, a term of God's salvation, God building something, building a box by which he is going to save. He's going to save Noah, he's going to save Moses, he's going to save his people. So Noah did as God commanded. He built the ark. And in building that ark, you remember he's, uh, he's preaching, he's proclaiming the judgment and the way of salvation. He's supposed to build the ark with three floors. The people that answers in Genesis, you know, I don't know that much about this myself, never done the calculations myself, but the people that answers in Genesis took the time to try and figure out, well, how much room would you need for to two of every kind of animal to come into the ark? And they figured out that not only could two of every animal fit in the ark, but actually two of every animal could fit on one floor of the ark. Well, there were three decks. We don't call them floors in a boat. We call them decks, right? So there are three decks in the ark. Well, all the animals go on one deck. Well, that leaves a deck for all their food, and you would need a lot of food for all those animals. And it leaves a whole deck free for Noah, his family, and anyone else. As I said before, God provided a way of salvation. If anyone had listened, they could have come into that ark with Noah and been saved. Nobody does repent, but that's not God's fault. God warned them and called them to repentance. They would not listen. Uh, and so we, we're going to see how they're destroyed in the flood, unfortunately. When everything is prepared, there's a week left. The animals start coming into the ark. When all the animals and Noah and his family are in the ark, we're told specifically that God shut the door. And that's very significant, that it's God who shut the door. That action of God preserved Noah and his family. He shut the door so that it was tight and secure. And Noah and his family were preserved inside the ark, the box of God's salvation. And everyone who wouldn't repent, wouldn't believe God's promise, is shut out outside and doomed to God's judgment. So God shuts the door and he you know, brings the gate down, the division between those who are saved and those who are not. And that's a lesson for us as well. God's judgment is coming. Now is the time to repent. If we repent and believe God's promises now, then on the day of judgment, we will be shut in to God's salvation. We will be brought into heaven and we don't have to fear condemnation or God's wrath ever again. We will be shut into the security of God's promises. But if we don't believe and don't listen to God's promises, we will be shut out forever. God shut the door and in that shutting of the door saved Noah and his family. The rains came and fell for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 is a significant number in scripture. It's the number of God testing his people. So for 40 days and 40 nights, Noah's faith would have been tested as the rain came down and uh, God, and he, he had to rely on God's promise that God would save him. Then uh, no doubt the ark would have been dark and would have been tossed back and forth by the waves. And there probably were days and times when Noah thought for sure the ark was going to break apart on a mountain or something. And he and everyone was going to drown. But God uh, held fast to Noah and kept him alive as he promised. 
The children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years, God testing them to teach them to trust in him. And of course, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. He was fasting for 40 days, God testing him uh, to see if he would put his faith in God. Now, we're not told that Noah's faith ever failed, but he was a sinner like us. There were probably times when he doubted or his faith was weak. Certainly the children of Israel in their 40 years in the wilderness often doubted God. And certainly we often doubt God when he tests us as well and fail. But the important thing is that Jesus, his 40 days in the wilderness, never faltered, but placed his faith and his trust solely in God. And he lived that perfect life for us. Uh, even if our faith sometimes fails, God's promises never fail. Jesus never failed. Uh, if we are weak, he is strong and he preserves us. Jesus endured that, that testing. And so we also have 40 days of Lent as well for the same reason. Uh, the 40 days of temptation, the 40 days of testing, the 40 days of fasting before uh, Easter Sunday, before Good Friday and Monday Thursday uh, when we see God's salvation. Notice at the end of Genesis chapter 7 that God repeats over and over again that all flesh died. Five times in five different ways God repeats that everything living on the land died except that which was with Noah in his ark. God wanted to make very, very clear that nothing survived that flood. He had made the promise that all flesh was going to die except that which was in the ark and he kept that promise. Everything that what every bird of the air and every beast and every creeping thing, everything that lived on the land or in the air died. Nothing survived that flood except those animals that lived in the water and those animals that were with Noah on the ark, as God had promised. Some people try and claim that Noah's flood was just a, a little flood, just a local flood. That's clearly not the case. God makes it very clear, all flesh, everything died except that which was in the ark. But then in the midst of all this death and destruction, we have chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. That's, that's the beautiful verse. That's the wonderful verse. That's the verse of God's salvation. That, of course, that doesn't mean that God forgot about Noah and then all of a sudden he was like, oh yeah, oh, I forgot about Noah. I got to go take care of him right away. Well, that's the way humans act. But when, it, when we're talking about God, takar is the, English, is the Hebrew word. God remembered Noah. It means that he never, ever forgot him. He remembered him the whole time. He never took his eye off Noah. It wasn't the ark that saved Noah. It was God's promise that saved Noah. If somebody else had built an ark other than Noah without the promise of God, that ark, that boat, would not have survived the flood. If Noah had made a mistake without realizing it when he was building the ark, something, some weakness in the ark, I can assure you God would have held the ark together anyway. It was God's promise, God remembering Noah and watching him the whole time that saved Noah, his family, and those who were with him in the ark. Noah showed his faith by believing the word of God and doing what God commanded, right? So James talks about how uh, you, you show me your, your faith without works and I will show you my faith by works. Uh, when we believe God's word, then we're going to do what God says, or at least we're going to try. We, sometimes, we often fail to do it, but we're at least going to try it and want to do it. Noah believed God's word and by faith, trusting that word, built the ark, right? That was his faith in action. It wasn't the work that saved him. It was the faith, it was God's promises and his faith in God's promises that saved him. But his faith was shown in the work which he did. God's promise saved Noah. 
God remembered Noah. That word is very significant in the Old Testament. God remembered. That's often used after a time of tribulation when God shows that he has never forgotten about his people and that he is going to keep his promises. And so the children of Israel were in Egypt, suffering in Egypt for so many years, and then God remembered his people. The time of his salvation had come. Uh, that he brought his people out of Egypt. And so the time, and then Zechariah, of course, in the New Testament with the birth of John the, John the Baptist says the th same thing. God has visited his people. It's really a reference to the same word that now he has remembered his promise and he has fulfilled it. Uh, God never forgot Noah the whole time, but now he's acting to show that he'd never forgotten Noah. It may have seemed to Noah like God forgot him, and it often seems to us like God forgets us in our life. Oh, why have you forgotten me, God? But God is waiting for the right time for his salvation, and in the right time he will act to save. And that's exactly what's going on here. God remembered Noah. He sent a great strong wind to dry up the waters, uh, stop the rain and dry up the waters uh, so that the flood would recede. Noah, God had shut the door, so Noah can't go in and out of the ark until God opens the door. But after a while, uh, the ark comes to rest, and Noah can tell, okay, the ark is resting on solid ground on the top of a mountain. He's kind of curious what's going on, so he takes, the, he takes the roof off the ark, and there's often questions about that. Um, remember, they, the, he's been in the ark for many, many months now, and now the rain has stopped, and the ark has come to rest on solid ground. So Noah's probably, that probably means that Noah is dismantling the roof. It's not that there's just a, a cover or a sunroof that he could open up easily. Uh, but he's probably dismantling part of the roof. He takes his hammer out and takes some of the boards out in, in order to get fresh air. After so long in the ark, I'm sure he wanted to get out on deck and maybe even get away from his wife for a moment. Or maybe his wife wanted to get away from him, you know, maybe both ways. Uh, get some space and some fresh air. He, he takes part, at least part of the roof off. Uh, probably, you know, uh, taking it off with his hammer, taking the actual boards off is probably what that means. Anyway, so he takes off the roof, and then he starts sending the birds out. And the first bird he sent out was a raven. The raven doesn't come back. That's that's pretty easy to understand. Ravens are carrions. They can eat uh, dead things, and there would have been plenty of dead things floating around. Uh, so the raven could have easily, you know, perched on a floating dead thing and eaten it and, and then gone to another one. So it's not surprising that the, that the raven didn't come back. So then Noah tries a dove. Now doves can't eat dead things. They need fresh living things. So the dove can't find anything, can't find any food. He comes back to Noah. A week later, Noah sends it out again. Now this time the dove finds something living. So things are starting to grow again. And this is kind of what Noah is looking for to see how long he, he has to be in the ark. He knows he has to wait for God to open the door, but he's kind of, you know, in the ark twiddling his thumbs like, how much longer? It's kind of like when I run on a treadmill and okay, I got... I, I try not to look down because I don't really want to know I got another mile left to go or whatever. But, you know, you can't help looking down. And, oh, I got another mile. I got another half a mile, etc. Uh, Noah can't leave the ark till God opens the door. But he's obviously kind of anxious to know when that's going to be. He's sending the dove out. The dove comes back the second time with the olive branch. He knows things are growing again. The third time the dove doesn't come back at all. So now Noah knows not only are things growing again, but the waters have receded enough that the dove can find a place to rest in and make a hole. It doesn't need to come back to the ark. Uh, so the third time the dove doesn't come back, Noah, but Noah has to wait, and then eventually God opens the door. Now, uh, some books will tell you that the flood lasted a year and ten days, but those books are forgetting that the Hebrew calendar 
And remember, Moses is the one writing this account. So even though Noah didn't have the Hebrew calendar and he would have used different months and different days, Moses is writing for the Hebrews, so he uses the Hebrew calendar. But the Hebrew calendar is 10 days short of a full year. And so every uh, about every three or four years, the Hebrews had to add a whole other month to their calendar uh, in order to make it so it didn't get totally out of sync with the seasons. Uh, so the Hebrew calendar is, is short 10 days of the year. So according to the Hebrew calendar, it was one year and 10 days, yes. But actually, when you factor in the 10 days that the Hebrew calendar is missing, it was exactly one year to the day that God opened the door and let Noah out from when he was, he was shut in. So he was in the ark for one day. And what's the first thing that Noah does? He offers sacrifices to God. Now remember, Noah took two of every animal into the ark back in Genesis chapter 6, except the birds and the clean animals. He didn't take two of each of the clean animals and the birds. He took seven of each of the clean animals and the birds. And God was preparing Noah for, at the time after the flood, clean animals means animals that you're able to eat. So God knew that Noah would need these animals for food, uh, and so he told him to take seven. And so here now Noah sacrifices one of each clean animal and one of each bird. Obviously, he must have had more than two of each of those things in the ark, because otherwise he sacrifices one, and well, no, no more of that kind of animal. They're all gone, right? Well, God was, was preparing Noah. He had seven of every clean animal, seven of every bird. Noah sacrifices one. He still has six left uh, for food for himself. Now, it's going to take a while for the earth to replenish itself and for food to grow on the earth again. And in the meantime, Noah and his family are going to need something to eat. So God was, was thinking ahead and preparing Noah for the time after the flood. And it, it is at this time then that God tells Noah, fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth. He gives to Noah and his family that same blessing he gave to Adam and Eve. He gives them the blessing of being able to have children. And children are a wonderful blessing. This is not a command from God. It's a blessing from God. Uh, God's giving us this blessing that we can have children. And what a wonderful blessing it is. And he also tells Noah that, oh, see, I give you every beast of the field for food. So back before the flood, God had told Adam and Eve that every, they could eat of every fruit and every vegetable. But there was no record of God saying it was okay to eat meat. Now it is. And one can un easily understand why the drastic change in climate that the flood would have caused would have meant that now man can't survive on plants anymore. We can in our day and age because we got refrigerators and, and we can ship in fruits and vegetables from you know all over the corners of the world. So people can survive as vegetarians even in the harsh winter of Wisconsin. But you imagine 200 years ago before they had electricity and refrigeration, how are you going to survive the winter on just fruit and vegetables? That would be really, really tough to do. And so God provides, okay, now you're going to need to eat the animals. But notice he also puts the fear of the animal or the fear of man into the animals. Unless man just slaughters all of God's animals, uh, he teaches the animals to run away from us because now, now that it's acceptable for us to eat food. It was never God's intention that man should eat the animals, but now he allows it uh, because, of, because it's necessary because of the way the world is because of our sin. Uh, now, God re-emphasizes what he said before the flood, that man's heart is still evil from his youth. I will never again send a flood to destroy all things as I have done, because man's heart, the inclination of man's heart is only evil even from his youth. 
And God said that before the flood too. Before the flood, God looked down and saw the evil of man and he regretted that he'd been made man. And what a sad sentence that is. And he determined to send the flood because of the evil of man. Now after the flood, he says, well, man's heart is still evil. Therefore, I will never again send the flood. And you see the difference there is the flood didn't work. And it's not as if God didn't know it wouldn't work. Of course, God knew that even before he sent the flood. But the, the flood wiped out almost all men from the face of the earth. But the problem is sin is in the heart of man. And so as long as man survives, which it did through Noah and his family, sin survives. So a fl another flood isn't going to do any more good than the first flood did. After the flood, men would flourish and multiply again and become evil again. And God knows it. So he's saying... Look, another flood isn't going to do any good. I need something else. I need another plant. Rather than washing man off the earth, I need to wash sin out of the heart of man. And so after the flood, God sets about that task of bringing the Savior who would redeem us and through whose blood sin is washed out of our hearts. And there's a close connection there then between the flood and baptism that we'll get to in just a, in just a little bit. God gives the rainbow as a visible sign of his promise. Oh, what a wonderful thing that is that God does for us. He tells us his promise, but he knows what we're like. We, he knows how easily we forget things when we're just told things. And so he gives us a visible reminder of his promise. Uh, just like when, when two couples get married, they exchange rings, and the rings are on their finger. I'm actually very bad at wearing my ring, wedding ring. I don't really like it. it. It bothers me, so I don't wear it very much. But most people, they wear their wedding ring all the time as a visible reminder of the promise that their spouse made to them, that promise of love and faithfulness uh, and that union that they have in God. And God knows how important it is for us to have that sign, that visible reminder, and so he gives us the rainbow. Now, there's some questions as to whether the rainbow existed before the flood. Uh, well, it seems as if there was no rain before the flood. And so maybe, a, you know, even though scientifically speaking, a rainbow would have been created if they had had rain before the flood like they did, like we do now. Since there was no rain, there was the rainbow was never seen. And so God allows it to be seen now and sets it as a promise. Whether the rainbow existed before the flood or not doesn't really matter. Even if it did, God gives it new meaning here as a reminder of his promise. And so it's still there as a reminder to us as well. Well, God does the same thing for, now that's the promise he gave to Noah, and it's a promise that exists to us today as well, that he'll never again send a flood. But God has given us a much more important promise, the promise of washing away the sin of our heart by his blood, by his death. And he has given us a visible sign, a visible reminder of that in baptism. And Peter reminds us that there's a close connection between baptism and the flood. In fact, he calls the flood an anti-type of which baptism is now the type. Sorry, he calls the flood a type of which baptism is now the anti-type. And what he's really saying there is that, that the flood was a lesser thing. The flood was the symbol and baptism is the real thing. So the flood was a, a visible symbol of God's wiping away sin, but it didn't actually wipe sin away from man's heart. What really wipes sin away from man's heart is baptism. And so Peter makes many connections between baptism and the flood. Uh, just as baptism washed away the sin of the world, so baptism washes away sin from our hearts. Just as the, the waters of the flood lifted Noah up and brought him closer to God, right? Remember how high up the waters of the flood went 
uh, 20 feet above the highest mountain. So also the waters of baptism lift us up out of this world and bring us before God and make us his children. Uh, just as the the flood saved those who believed. The flood crushed and destroyed those who didn't believe, but it also saved Noah and those who did believe. It preserved them and, and rescued them from the wickedness of the world that existed before the flood. So the waters of baptism save us too, rescuing us from the wickedness of our own sinful flesh and the world around us and bringing us into God's kingdom. Just as the flood, just as the rainbow is a visible sign of God's promise, baptism is for us a visible sign of God's promises to us. The wages of sin is death. We see that very clearly in the story of the flood. God's power, God's judgment on man's sinfulness is death. He's very patient. He's very long-suffering. He's very merciful, waiting a long time, hoping that men will repent. But in the end, the payment of sin, the, the, the what we deserve because of our sin is death. But God provides a way of salvation. So many people these days say, well, if God is real and if he's good, why doesn't he uh, stop the evil in the world? Why doesn't he stop evil men from doing evil things? Well, they should read the story of the flood before saying such foolish, th foolish things. Do you really want God to bring his judgment on all evil? Because if he does, that means another worldwide flood. That means all are destroyed. And only those who believe in God's promises are saved. So, no, we don't really want God to bring his judgment on evil. Because we wouldn't escape either if he brought his judgment on evil. We are sinful just like the rest. But instead, we are grateful and thankful and rejoice that he is long-suffering and merciful. That he endures the wickedness of man, preaching his word so that we might have time to hear about Jesus and repent. So we might have time to be baptized and receive that water that washes away our sin. Lord's blessings on your Sunday school lesson. As always, give me a call or send me an email if you have any questions.